There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. You know, I'm a big admirer of Alec Baldwin. He has had some tremendous highs in his life and some pretty devastating low points as well. He is fascinating because he combines interest in the arts, politics. He's got a really interesting backstory, and he's had this incredible life that's been full of highs and lows. And he understands the media culture probably better than anyone through the mistakes he's made in dealing with the media. We've kind of watched Alec, I think, learn on the job and in real time as a public figure and someone, you know, who's not just an actor, but just someone who's the quintessential New Yorker. Yeah, probably no one except Donald Trump has had as many run-ins with the tabloid media uh, pack in New York besides Alec Baldwin. And the interview didn't disappoint at all. I mean, as any fan of 30 Rock knows, he's a really funny guy. But he's also very smart and articulate. And we had a conversation that ranged from Donald Trump, of course, to hosting a game show. You asked him some insightful questions about his personal life, the best directors he's ever worked with, his experiences with Tony Hopkins, and made us laugh probably more than any guest has. You know, just I just realized, by the way, that you and I, we could have a show together. We could. You could be on in the morning, like at 7 in the morning. Let's do it. You be for like two hours from 7 to 9. I'm and there. And you and I would be the stars. Yeah. We'd like talk to people, and you could do some news, and I could do like some interviews and stuff. I think that's a great idea. And we'd be on in the morning idea. on the network. We could be How does on, that sound to you? We could be on the internet. Yeah, gee, Katie, what is it like to do a two-hour morning show from 7 to 9 every I day? I don't know. It's hard. All right. Thank you for being here. No, no, Brian and I are very excited. God, we have so much to talk about. Where do we begin? I guess we have to begin with Donald Trump. I'm in the car coming here, and he's doing this press conference, his first press conference. And I'm thinking, this guy hasn't had a press conference in so long. You would have thought he would have rehearsed. You know, we, we would have thought he would have had one of the greatest press conferences and just efficient and tight and presenting himself the right way. And instead, he's on TV right now. It's going very strangely. In fact, you were impersonating some of the things. Yes. 
He was saying, NBC, great organization. Yeah, sure, great. I don't want to talk to you. And uh, it's just uh, the amazing. The BuzzFeed thing, remember? BuzzFeed, fake news, fake news. Like the Nazis would do that, say that I, oh, you know, the Nazis said that about Hitler, <laughs> that he liked to pee on hookers <laughs> in the Berchtesgaden. It's a fact. It's a known fact. Everybody knows that. So we're just getting right into it here. I know, no, I wish that people could see Alec because as he's impersonating Donald Trump, he's got that uh, sort of perpetual. The mask of anxiety. Uh, per, per, no, call. perpetual. The O, the o, o expression, o, the O face. The O with his lips. He's got the O face going on. But I think the big question is, why should Trump change now? You said that, you know, you're surprised that he's not rehearsing, that he's lashing out, that he's saying offensive stuff. I mean, what lesson would he have learned from the campaign that would motivate him to change? I t- that's a very good point, and I don't expect, I, I have no expectation of him changing. But I do believe, I, I, I truly just... You know, being, and this is the, I can't think of any other way to phrase it, being a student of human nature is the direct result of what I do for a living and watching people and observing people and thinking, what's the real, the real thing that's going on with them behind the mask they're trying to manage all the time? You know, what are they really thinking and feeling? And they present themselves in public a, a different way. I fully expected Trump to relax once he won. I fully expected him to say that there were insecurities he had and there was a defensiveness and there was a pettiness that would not completely abate, it would subside to some degree. And he would go on to become more presidential, if you will. I think a lot of people, Alec, are still having a hard time wrapping their heads around these words, President Trump. So how are you kind of processing it? And what's your attitude with the inauguration just around the corner? I think that, um, you know, I mean, there's nothing I can say that you know you haven't read or seen before in terms of other people expressing their opinions about this because that's all people talk about all day long it's it's pretty much it's phenom it's pretty much a f- phenomenon i haven't seen but i will say briefly that um uh you know when other men won in my lifetime that i was not fond of when reagan won and even the more kind of uh um difficult one in 2000 and the florida thing and gore and everything and he won but in each of those cases a few weeks go by a few months go by and everybody settles in and they realize that that man because they were both men obviously is not malicious in any way now we have a guy who's the president of the united states who's a malicious person he's a malicious person and i don't think people are going to settle in i think that the way he behaves and the way people react to him this is going to be this way for the next four years it's not going to subside at all what what advice would you give uh, members of the media? Because I think there is a lot of, you know, I think ratings. I mean, Alec, you know all about all this stuff as much as anyone. They can't alienate a huge segment of their audience who want to give Donald Trump a chance, who believe in his sort of his approach to governing. And yet they also don't want to normalize what is to many people, really repugnant, reprehensible behavior. So I think they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place in a way. What what would you say is important in, in terms of media coverage in the next four years? Well, I mean that's a that's a big question, but I think that um, I think that the the, the two things that are uh, the thing I see most vividly around Trump. One is that all of these men. Who uh, and some women who diminished him 
and reduced him during the campaign, and some of them ran against him, have all signed on uh, in, in, in the way that partisan politics in this country demands right now. And because they all know that the only thing worse is that he doesn't win re-election. They want, they, 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 you know, Ryan, everybody is signed on saying, oh, Trump's okay, Trump's okay, it's all going to be fine. Um, and that worries me because of these appointments. His appointments to me are very, very, very frightening. I mean, I'm on the board of directors of People for the American Way, so I'm very concerned about the courts and a couple of vacancies that may come up, certainly a couple, two or three that will come up over the course of the next eight years if he is reelected. But when I think about Trump now, what I think about is the word intervention. Is there anyone, I mean, his daughter even, who is close enough to him, that a group of people can sit her down and coach her through something? And is she the one that can reach him and say to him, here's a list, a very basic list. Here's three things you need to stop doing, and here's three things you need to start doing. Let's just begin there. I with think the basic she tried, program. didn't she, Alec? I yeah, mean, she, she was the one that brought <clears throat> Al, uh, Al Gore in to talk to him at Trump Tower uh, there have been I, Robert F. Kennedy, which is interesting. That's a whole nother area. Now he's going to lead uh, the a, vaccine right. inquiry. I didn't realize Robert F. Kennedy was so anti-vaccine. Very, uh, virulently. That's a good word for vaccine. Right, yeah, virulently. that's why I did it. I know yeah. that was clever. Thank you. But you know, <laughs> I, I think I think the Al Gore meeting sort of proved the point for those who are critical of Trump. That is, Ivanka brought Gore in. Gore talked to Trump for like over an hour. And then the next day, he announced to leave the, the, the EPA, somebody who denies climate change. So I think people who are holding out hope Gore did me a favor. <laughs> he brought everything into focus for me, and I decided to bring in an assassin <laughs> to literally take out the EPA. <laughs> Mr. President-elect, I didn't realize you'd be joining us today. Thank you. <laughs> How did the whole Donald Trump impersonation gig come your way, Alec? I mean, obviously, they knew they had to have somebody once he became the nominee as somebody to play that. And they had all these people in the bullpen that had done it for them. Daryl Hammond, for Darryl, example. Daryl, uh, Taryn Killing left the show. And Tina, I guess, was the one I was told uh, uh, that recommended to, to Lauren that I do it. And I said this before, and it was just such an amazingly weird thing for me, which is I had no idea what I was going to do. Literally, the moment the stage manager had my arm in his hand, he was leading me to the stage to do the dress rehearsal of the first show at 8 o'clock that night. I sat in a room, and we watched tapes of him. And in anything, I mean, I'm not a comedian, because comedians, to me, are people who write their material. To, to be a real comedian, you have to write you know, Tracy Morgan and Tina and so forth. These are people who have that gift of writing. I'm just an actor who says words that other people create. And we'd sit there, and whether it was Tony Bennett or Pacino or De Niro or other little things I've done uh, um, uh, in an ancillary way in my work that way, there's an element of appreciation for them, which is always important. And with Trump, I don't have that element of appreciation, which makes it difficult. So you wind up saying to yourself that it's not so much the voice, because I'm not going to sound like him that much. I'm kind of, you kind of get to a thing that's like a caricature. Everything's swollen and bloated and, 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 and exaggerated. It's the look where the hair is what it is. But to me, the key to doing him was to be a man who paused regularly, almost metronomically paused, to dig for a word and never came up with a better word or a stronger word. So Trump will sit there and go, I was talking to the president of Mexico who is just a fantastic, fantastic person, a great, <laughs> great person, 
And like, and whenever he pauses, you feel like there's like, in some Coen Brothers movie, there's like a bunch of men in a filing room, like in his brain, <laughs> sweating and breathing heavily, trying to find a word. And they keep finding that F word. Fantastic. They look at the, the main nerve, the guy in the big chair, they look up, they go, we got nothing. We got And Trump's like, let me tell you something. We're going to build a wall here in Mexico, and that wall is going to be just a fantastic wall. <laughs> and... You know, it's like he's always pausing to come up with something, some rhetorical flourish or some muscular word, and he never gets it. Never. So I always try to build that into the impersonation where he's like, Melania, you know that I want just to be with some great, great people, you know, for dinner. <laughs> you know, it's, you know what I'm saying? I, mean, I don't want to be to death. It's so, it seems so labored, right? And then you hear it and you're like, Seriously, that's all you got? But I wonder if I wonder truly if here is a guy. I said to somebody that here is a guy who, and this is this is just my opinion, and I don't say this to pile up on him or be mean or what have you. This is just the reality, which I find fascinating. Here's a guy who, through I guess the kind of odd uh, uh, nature of television, convinced uh, a, a critical mass of people, certainly not the majority of voters as we've learned, but a critical mass of people that he was this kind of whip-cracking, can-do executive on this TV show, this reality show. Whereas in New York, where he lives and his home base of his company, Trump is not admired at all. When you see Trump in social circles in New York, he was endured. You know, he was always somebody, people would nod to him and say, hey, how are you? Because in New York, people at the very least respect other people who make a lot of money. And Trump has purportedly made a lot of money. So they've tipped their hat to him in that regard. But he's not an honored guest anywhere. He's not an invited speaker anywhere. He's not a featured guest at some social event or dinner. He's kind of an outcast in the world he lives in. When you when you got this uh, gig doing Donald Trump for SNL, Alec, did you think it was kind of a short-term thing? Did you think, well, this will be fun during the campaign, and now, whole mother of God, I'm stuck doing this? Well, I didn't view it as being stuck in the, in the sense that, you know, when it came on, I, I certainly thought he was going to lose. Um, I definitely thought he was going to lose, but— um, uh, and maybe not by much, but I, I just never, never dreamed we, we would be where we are now. So when he won, uh, there really was a part of me that sat there and thought, you know, I, I, I emailed Steve Higgins, the exec producer who runs the show with Lauren, and I said, what's the schedule for the rest of the season again? And I literally have it in my phone. I could show it to you. I'm like, how many more shows are you doing this year? I'm like, wow, I'm supposed to go to Paris to do Mission Impossible in May. I'm supposed to go to this place and this place in March. Are you making plans so you can be part of the show from here I'm on out? I'm going to do it again. I don't think I'm going to do it this week, but I'm doing it definitely next week, and we're going to do the, uh, the one for the inauguration. I mean, I have to say, you're so funny, and it's so great watching you. And let's listen. We have a montage of some of your greatest hits as Donald Trump on SNL. Let's take a listen. Oh, no. What gives you the energy for all that? My deep love for America <laughs> and a really, really big handful of uppers that are meant for racehorses. <laughs> I use a very private, very secure site where one can write whatever they want to and no one will read it. It's called Twitter. You know, I can't quite say it on live television, um, but basically, uh, you said you wanted to... to Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> I deeply apologize. Are you trying to say apologize? No, I would never do that. What I am doing is gina, gina, huge gina. Her face is completely orange, except around the eyes where it's white. Siri, how do I kill ISIS? <laughs> it's the Blackberry. 
What's your relationship with Donald Trump personally? Do you have one? No. No. I mean, Did you I, ever? I mean, no. I mean, I would meet him in town. And and again, I mean, you, you never want to be uh, mean or impolite to people like that. I mean, if, you don't, if you're not a fan of theirs or you're not some supporter of theirs, I never watched The Apprentice. I watched it like once when my brother Stephen was on. But um, I would never, you know, want to be rude to somebody like that to their face, even if they weren't, you know, somebody you wanted to hang out with. So I would bump into him at events from here and there. And, and But also, he also provided the location manager of a movie I did, uh, uh, an apartment in his building, the top floor of the International under the old uh, Gulf and Western building. And um, he allowed us to shoot a film there. And he stopped by where we were shooting. And he's very gregarious and very fun. And But I think what he's somebody is who he's... Uh, uh, um, he 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 wants to be appreciated. You know, when we were shooting the movie, he would walk in and go, "Isn't this apartment great? Isn't this the most fantastic <laughs> condominium you've ever shot in in your entire life?" Just go ahead, say it. And what I'm going to say to you is, before you speak, let me just say, "You're welcome. You're welcome." <laughs> you know, he he wants gratitude. <laughs> And he wants recognition for what he does. So you haven't heard from him. He hasn't reached out. I know he's tweeted that SNL, you know, has jumped the shark, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't, like, he doesn't appreciate it. Yeah. Meryl Streep is overrated. And I thought that was great. Well, Meryl Streep is overrated. I thought, you really ought to sit down with some advisors, like some acting coaches or something, or some PR people, and they'll go, now, Donald, that would be a vivid example of uh, what you shouldn't do. I have to ask you, since you brought it up, what did you think of Meryl Streep's speech at the Golden Globes? Well, I think that, um, you know, we're at a point now where that kind of thing where somebody in the arts or performers, you know, whether they're actors or musicians or what have you, that piggyback that kind of statement onto an event. We've seen a lot of that, and I think maybe people are kind of bored with that, and they don't—they—they, they, it's kind of predictable to them. However, I do give her uh, my understanding of her. I mean, I'm a huge—I'm completely in love with her, and I worked with her and had a great time. And with her, I kind of give her a pass because she, I think she was speaking as a woman. I think women are deeply hurt by what's happened and what he said and how he uh, uh, sounds like he treats women and views women. Or the change. less powerful, I think, because she gave the example of the reporter, right, who had the disability. Well, no, 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 I, I agree that that's in, in her content, she's covering a broader spectrum. But I think what, what, what drives her is her being a woman where— you know, I mean, Trump is someone who has abused power everywhere he's been in his life. I mean, everywhere he's gone, he's abused power and, and, and people who were less powerful than him. But I do think that, uh, I mean, what she said was very smart, was very effective. Um, I, but I can see now where, you know, there's people in this country, they just want to, uh, they want to take a deep breath and they want to, you know, right after the inauguration, we have to accept where we are. And the task at hand for people who are political opponents of Trump's you know, whining about Trump and lampooning Trump and our mouth, our hand over our mouth, aghast, oh my God, Trump's the president. We got to get over that now. But we you were just saying, how to get earlier in the conversation though, Alec, you were saying, <clears throat> you know, you you went through sort of the, the stages of grief with other presidential right, candidates right. who you didn't agree with. But it was hard to get to that level of acceptance, if you will, the final stage and the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross right, right, you know, right. stages agree right. with somebody like Donald Trump because he is a malicious person. So I hear you saying both things. I think, it's, I think it is both things at the same time. I think Well, I think it's people will—the the task is to move on and to use this to energize the, the, the identification and, uh, if you will, the selection of someone to run against him. We need to find that person uh, who's going to win. 
And that needs to be job one. And number two, I think while he's in office, he's just not going to enjoy what other people have enjoyed. I mean, I think, I think people are going to be, they're going to, the press, and he's invited this, quite frankly, the press and the public that are not supportive of him, they're going to keep giving it to him right to the end. Speaking of the end, we got to uh, take a quick break um, to hear some messages from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. God, you're good. <laughs> Everybody has been talking about Russia. It's in so many headlines these days, Brian. And so in our next episode, we're going to be speaking with a man named Bill Browder. He was once Russia's largest foreign investor. He is now a very strong and vocal anti-Putin voice. And we really want to talk to him about the pros and cons of a closer relationship with Russia and get some better understanding about the risk-reward ratio of a reset. I'm very alliterative, aren't I? So what questions do you have about Russia for Mr. Browder? Leave us a message by calling 929-224-4637. Duh. (laughs) Oh, brother. (laughs) The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. How did you two find Ryan each other? Ryan is really, really smart. No. Don't set expectations too high. Now he's going <laughs> to be other. disappointed. Brian worked, with me. Brian worked with me at CBS. Did you? Um, and he went to Harvard and then Stanford Law School and for some reason I is interested in media. But he's also like a political junkie. He, what I always did he do with you at CBS? He was sort of a producer, helped me with the Sarah Palin interview. We spent like four days together in my den coming, <laughs> to get, coming up with all the questions for Sarah Palin. Didn't he, smell too good at the end. He has a photographic memory about all things yeah. political. I always tell the story that he got kicked, that he got grounded in high school for sneaking out of his room to watch C-SPAN. That's how big a nerd this guy is. Yeah, it was a sad <laughs> what childhood. I love is the, what I love is the image of you— um, uh, getting this job where you're on on the mic, so to speak, with her, where she says to me, where she says to you, I'm going to go and uh, do this podcast. Would you like to come with me? And there's this Eve Harrington moment for you where you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll come with you. But I want to be on the air with you. Yeah, I don't want to be a producer, see? I want to be on the air. Well, that's why I- going to make I, me a star. I, I'm, <laughs> I, I want Brian to, to be on the air. I want him to have that voice. You're incubating. 
She's yeah, introduced me to a plastic surgeon, and in a few months, I'll be <laughs> oh, ready stop for it. You're 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 exactly. Exactly. You joke. Yeah. I'm going to have a facelift. I, I, I said to my wife, I said, I'm going to have a facelift when I'm 60, which is almost- Hey, just, I just turned 60. But, but you're, but Watch you, it, but, but you're timeless. No, <laughs> but oh, I'm saying, very well you're done. A timeless, no, but you're a timeless beauty. Um, <clears throat> you're the prom queen of all of media, and we know that. But my point is that I'm going to be 60. I'm going to be 59 in April, so a year after that, I'm 60. And I said to my wife, I want to have a facelift. She said, no, I like, don't have a facelift because, men, it looks so funny. I said, that's the point. I want people to gasp when they see me. <laughs> I want them to go, ah, what, have they, what has he done? Because <laughs> that's my favorite New Yorker cartoon. You'll do anything for attention. Anything for attention. What's my favorite New Yorker cartoon where the guy looks at the woman and the doctor's in the office with the woman, and he says, he says, I can't make you look younger, but I can make you look like you've had a lot of expensive plastic surgery. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, yes, okay. Let's that. talk a little bit about, well, there is one thing you and Donald Trump have in common, which is your proximity or your the way that you've interacted, if you will, with the New York media tabloid culture. Right. Um, he, to me, seems to have utilized it with the notion that all press is good press. And you, to me, has what? What expression did you use for Alex's relationship with the New York tabloid media? Kind of careful now. No, <laughs> whipsawed by it. Yeah, a little bit whipsawed by it. Well, I think the, the the only thing I can say to that is, when you're provoked by certain people in the media, um, I definitely did the wrong thing a handful of times, and it seemed like it happened. Uh, uh, you know, um, a lot of it in very close succession. When you become that person that is a clickbait or cover bait uh, subject for like the New York Post and so forth, that's, uh, uh, that's a tough current to paddle your way out of. And there are ways to do that. But I think that, I mean, you know, I write this in my book, my memoir is coming out in, in April. And in my book, I talk about how I walked down the streets of New York and there was a guy coming toward me, an elderly couple. And the guy was this very distinguished looking guy in a suit and a tie and a camel hair coat, this African-American guy, and he took one look at me, saw that it was me, and just like, there's that unmistakable glint of recognition, and he kind of like shook his head and looked down at the ground, because within like a week prior, the New York Post said that I called this guy this racial epithet, it was a photographer from the Post. Now, as I said repeatedly, if I was going to use a word that was a racial epithet, it wouldn't be something from a Rod Steiger movie from 1969, and we're down in like Savannah, you know, make them Georgia or, or something. But from the in the heat of the night or right, something. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I and I said, you know, there are other words. And when I grew up in my neighborhood, people might have used. But I went to have an interview with the DA's office. They called me in to have a hate crimes investigation, a preliminary investigation, and they were contemplating charging me with a hate crime for saying this to this guy. When we were done, I said, well, at the very beginning, I said, well, the guy's a photographer, a paparazzi and a videographer, is there a videotape? And there was this odd moment, there was this pause that the DA had this woman, because what she was hoping was I would implicate myself in spite of the presence of the tape, that I'd say that I did something, because they're obviously their lawyers who know that that's a possibility. There's a pause, and she said, yes, there's a tape. I said, well, let's play the tape. And we play the tape, and at no, no point in the tape do you hear me say any of what he accused me of saying. But you do hear him say, he walks back to the to the journalist that he's working with in tandem and says, she goes, what happened? What happened? He goes, I think he called me, and there's a pause. He goes, a coon or something. And you never hear that on the tape at all. And you hear everything recorded on the tape. So I said to the woman from the DA's office, I said, are you going to hold a press conference and announce that you did not 
discover? And of course, the answer was no. So the tabloids spatter you with all this mud, and you get covered with all this mud. And in my profession, it damages your reputation, which is really all you have significantly. It takes you a lot of time to wipe all that off of you. And I turned to the woman thinking, you know, one statement from you to the press would say, we conducted this investigation. I said, what's the point of this investigation? Is it just to relieve you of a burden? Or are you willing to exonerate me in the process? And they did nothing. The DA's office didn't. They would not make a statement. They did nothing. So you are left, for the most part, to perform this function for yourself, which is very time-consuming and very, very painful. Now, I learned some profound lessons from getting fired from MSNBC, a flurry of things right around 2013 and 2014, which is that the less you have the press in your life, the better. You want to cherry pick it and just do it. Every now and then, you, I mean, in my business, which is one thing, and I'll finish with this, one thing people don't understand is the fulcrum for, the, uh, the uh, raison d'etre for my relationship with the press is nearly always contractually obligated. The people I work for hand me a contract and say, you must talk to some percentage of these people to promote this project. And if you don't, you're in breach of your contract. Otherwise, I sincerely doubt I would do, you know, 80% of what they asked me to do. Why do you think it was so relentless over that period of time, Alec? And, and, and you become, it's like you tag, that, you're it. You yeah, become that you, person. I, I feel like, you know, it became a weird kind of sport. And that, do you think they somehow smelled weakness or vulnerability or your reaction to it made it more enticing to cover always, you? I think I, you they know? always want to bury people who they have some who they think has some other potential. I mean, that was a time when people were coming to me. I mean, I had some pretty prominent people come to me and ask me to run for mayor in 2013 when de Blasio won. I mean, I had people, I mean, I was on the cover of New York Magazine in 1997. They said I was going to run for the Senate 20 years ago in advance of the 98 campaign. Um, the So you think it was to cut you off at the knees politically? I think it was. I think that they want to damage people who all hope, they, they have a, dream, a desire to reduce and to nullify all people that are their political opposites, whether they're in the arts or they're actually bona fide political figures. I don't think that they look at me as somebody who's some virile political candidate, but I'm somebody who is a loud and uh, persistent... Opinionated. Opinionated, yeah, rock in their shoe in terms of their... I mean, I'm constantly pissing on the Post. and the, I mean, let's, let's put it this way. The Post is nothing but a mouthpiece for Murdoch. It, it, it hemorrhages money. It loses tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a year, the, the Post. And Murdoch and his family maintain that as, a, as, a, as a, uh, a forum for them to launch their political opinions. They've kind of backed off. I'm wondering why you're kind of poking them in the eye with a sharp stick right now. Because I feel like, you know, I, I read the stuff when you went through this sort of phase where you were in their in their uh, target or and 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 I was always thinking oh it's nice that Alec has made his peace with them or they've made his their peace with him and they're not kind of I don't think you ever make peace him. with them yeah I don't think you ever do no it's just a question of it's they, they move on to somebody else and they move on and, and I'm not as as interesting for that those purposes anymore you know they'll give it to they'll give it to Merrill for the next couple months over what she said and they'll They'll identify somebody else who their staff, it's like that bullpen you see on TMZ and they all sit around shooting the breeze about 
what stories that they think are the most tabloid worthy and 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 that energy moves on and meanders to other other people so i i mean right now you know for me um if you could write a check to some organization and pay them to never see your name in the paper again, I'd be the first in line to write that check. And that includes the New York Times, by the way. Well, it's interesting. A couple of years ago, yeah, all you, media, really. you got a lot of attention for writing a piece about how you were retiring from public right, life. Right. What did you mean by that? And have you have you done that since then? Well, I think that, that, that number one, again, that that idea was to ever think that I could have a successful relationship with the media to talk about my work— and with any joy or any um, uh, kind of uh, collegiality, deal with the media as a, necess- as a necessary element of my work. Like I go into rooms periodically. I just came from a press conference in Los Angeles at the TCA. And to always be going into these rooms with these people and dealing with them and hoping that they would have some desire to and 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 and. and Subsequently, ability to interpret even remotely who you really are. Well, whether you're I'm, malicious. I, I'm that way. No, no, no. You're very. No, no you're very. I, I, but you're not I, you out know. to get people. You're not malicious. And and but my point, just to finish this point, is that. So the answer is that was a bit premature for me to put it in. The, I, I probably should have put it differently, which is that is I've tried to minimize that as much as possible. I mean, I have been through this Trump thing, for example, offered the cover of every magazine you could possibly imagine. I've been offered untold hundreds of thousands of dollars to put the wig on and walk in and do, you know what speaking fees are in this business. I've been offered a ton of money. And I agreed with Lauren when we started that I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't monetize this gig at all, really. I just, that's, that's why we announced on the show, on the, on the, on the, in the media, that they pay me the SNL guest fee of $1,400 a show to do the show. This isn't about money. But apropos of what you're saying, and I don't want to dwell on this, which is that, uh, that, the idea that I could make it fun and I could make it relaxed and make it easy and I'd have my relationship with reporters and things like that and try to handle it a certain way, that's over. That's what died. And that is that I can never trust, because the media is so desperate for funds now. All media sources are so desperate for clickbait and ratings that they will go to any lengths. I mean, I say this to you, of all people, and remember, I, don't, I really don't enjoy saying this. It kind of makes me sad. But like when I had this thing where I left this message for my daughter on this tape, uh, NBC and their producers and the Today Show producers went and got Harvey Levin and put him on the air before me. And I was doing 30 Rock and everyone in my life was saying to me that I would get a gift basket that said, from your NBC family. I thought, well, my God, I I think I might be in the wrong family if uh, Matt Lauer is going to interview Harvey Levin before me. And nobody even contacted me. They put Levin on. And I mean, everybody knew how to reach me, and I was working for them. And when they did that, I never did the Today Show ever since then, ever. And that was in 2007. And I said to myself, that's 10 years ago. And I said to myself, not with any anger or any hatred, I just said to myself, I need to have less of this in my life. Did you ever talk to Matt about it? Not really. There was a quick mention of it because he guessed it on 30 Rock. But there really wasn't anything to say because certainly Matt didn't make that decision. His producers did. It wasn't really up to Matt, so. But, but but when you make that thing, I mean, out of anger and frustration, I'd hoped that I would never have to speak to the media again. But believe it or not, I've certainly have reduced it a great deal. And I've made exceptions for people who have law degrees from Stanford University. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. That's what I call the Stanford rule. <laughs> so can we talk about 
your upbringing and kind of how you got into all of this? Because I think a lot of people don't know. You grew up on Long Island uh, in the 1960s. Right. Your dad was a school teacher. Right. Your mom was a housewife. You were one of six kids. Right. Money was tight. Right. How did that upbringing affect your choice of career and kind of how you've pursued your life well, since Well, that's then. really a very important theme in the book I wrote, which is that, that there were other things I dreamed of doing. There were other things I wanted to do. And people kind of enticed me into trying this. And every month or whatever period you want to use to calibrate it, that I remained in this business, things got better. I got a job right out of school, out of acting school. Uh, I went to Los Angeles. I got work. I just kept working. I just kept lighting one off the other. I was chain shooting, and I was like just working, working, working. Then I got into you know primetime TV. Then I got into supporting roles in movies, then bigger roles in movies, and it all just had this momentum. But the entire time, and I will say, this pertains to inside the body of the work I've done, and this is a big part of what the book is about. Is I never really often got to do what I wanted to do because my background left me obsessed with I had to make money and not be like my dad. So when I worked, it was always like, I got I to work. I got to keep working. I got to make as much money as I can. I don't want to, you know, my dad didn't, uh, you know, he was a school teacher. And there were things that his colleagues and other school teachers did that they didn't want to do to supplement their income. I mean, there's father, my father had friends of his that were younger men who painted houses in the summer. Well, they had floor polishing companies where they sent out men to banks and cleaned the floors of hospitals and banks. My father had friends... You're talking about teachers? Teachers, who when the summer would come, they ran travel agencies, and they went and did, uh, They went on cruise ships, or they did, had some crazy uh, supplemental work that they did, and my dad didn't do that. He Everything my dad did was a paycheck from the school. He coached football. He coached riflery. He did a lot of different things. So was it the money, or was it the gravy train that was so uh, enticing, or was it the work itself? It wasn't even enticing. It was necessary. Well, it was, that, that was the problem. Was What was enticing was the work. And what got in the way was my need to, to make a living. So there were many, many opportunities to work and do things I wanted to do. And, you know, and I don't want You mean want different to, than acting? No, no. Jobs within the business. Uh-huh. Some, some, you know, monster director saying, come with me to Australia for six months and we're going to make a movie and the sequel while we're down there. And you're going to play the lead role in this gigantic blockbuster movie. And me turning and going, oh, I can't do that. I'm married. And I just had a baby. My wife, I was married to Kim. My wife's not coming to Australia for six months with my daughter. So my life getting in the way of that or, or, or somebody saying, here's a movie you're going to do that's the movie you need to be doing, and we don't have any money. We don't have any money to bring your family. Come to the Caribbean, and we're going to be shooting it on a boat. And it's this extraordinarily interesting project, but we can't bring your family down. We're going to pay you 50 cents to do the movie. And I go, oh, I can't do that. I can't leave my wife and you know, I'm, I'm remarried and have three kids. So everything has been family. And I'm not complaining. I'm not asking for like a medal here. I'm, I'm no different than anybody else in that way. And then I would turn around and I have to do a job to make money. You know, and I would, I'd have to supplement that. And so the, uh, it, without beating it to death, in a patchwork of decisions I've had to make, countless scores of decisions over the years, uh, there's things I might have done that would have made me um, more, uh, what's the word, uh, you know, kind of cemented in my career and everything would be a lot more easier. More of a easier. Tom Hanks. I, I yeah, know. whatever. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't like to compare to other people because they are who they are. But you, I would have had a much more uh, easy time of things now. Having said that, I mean, I think your career choices have been so 
That's interesting all an accident. <laughs> and smart, and had you've done such a variety of things, Alec. That I've done everything, you yeah. know. And I think, I mean, I think your life and career have been far more interesting because of that. Don't but, but, you? But, but let me ask you this, and I, I don't want to just turn it on you, but you know, you're probably, you know, you're one of the four or five most famous women in the history of the news business, and you did a show which was the number one show in the morning. And you were like like people wake up and brush their teeth, you know, they might as well just have had a toothbrush with you on it, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, because you were so uh, a part of their lives in, on the morning show. And when the time came for that to end, that was your decision for it to end, I'm assuming. You could yes. have kept doing it forever. I could have. Right. And, and when, when you didn't want to do it anymore, if you don't mind my asking, why? I think for me, I—, I the, the show itself had become a little repetitive. Um, I wanted a new challenge. Uh, I wanted to leave before people wanted me to leave, in a way. I mean, sure. I think. And I had an opportunity to do something. I had an opportunity to try something new and be challenged. And, you know, I think, you know, sometimes I wonder about that. I could have stayed. I could have been celebrating 25 years while Matt was t- celebrating 20. And um, I think for me, it just, I didn't want my life to be that one thing and that one thing alone. And I think probably motivated by some of the things that you've been motivated by. I think that people don't realize that no matter how lucrative the job is, no matter how famous you are, and there are a few people who are, are as famous and successful as you've been. Uh, you do, you know, 20 years goes by and you go, wait a second. You know, I would like to just do something different. And um, for me, uh, I mean, the biggest thing in my life now that dictates what I do is that I met someone and I fell in love and I got married. And I'm 59 years old pretty soon. I have three children, three and under. We had three children in three years. And so when someone says to me, come do a movie, there were two examples that I don't want to mention the details and offend anybody, but there are two examples of movies. Like La La Land? Right, 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 like La La Land, yeah. <laughs> they yeah, were like, right, right. We, we don't really want this Ryan Gosling guy, but yeah, we're going to have to go they, to him, Alec, if, if you, you say do, no. They, they said, is there anybody you recommend we hire now that you're not going to do it? <laughs> I said, yeah, I really like Ryan Gosling. He reminds me <laughs> well, of a younger me. Well, that happens to you all the time. It's either I said, you he's a younger or Ryan me. Gosling. He's a younger <laughs> yeah, exactly. me. I said, you really, what you really want is a younger me, and that's right. Whether it be Ryan Gosling. Um, but, um, well, these two films, somebody came to me and said, do you want to do this film? And, and there were both people who I had on a list of people who, if they called me, I wouldn't even think about it. I would just do it. Two directors, both men, who I really admired so deeply. And in both cases, I said, I can't do it because of my wife and my kids. One was like, let's go to the city for five weeks. We can't bring your family. We have no money. And I thought, I don't want, to, I don't want my son to wake up and go, oh, because my wife will do that with on, on uh, FaceTime. If I do go away for a day or so, my wife... We'll, we'll, we'll FaceTime, and my son's looking at me like, you know, you're not around the corner in the bedroom or, you know, in the bathroom brushing your teeth, and I just don't want to miss that. So I've, uh, so I say no to a variety of things, whether it's a money gig or a creative gig, and then I go do Match Game. <laughs> yeah. What was that? Match Game was they came to me and said, would you do 10 episodes in a summer okay, block? Because I love you. But I saw you on television doing that, right. and I was like, why on earth is Alec doing that? Well, I'm going to tell you real quickly, which is that they said, well, let's do a 10, we're going to do 10 episodes in this summer block, and I put the money in my charity because I'm always looking for these kooky ways to fund my charity. 
Capital One commercials, uh, uh, Amazon Echo commercial for the Super Bowl. All the funds go to my charity. Then we did Match Game, and it was very successful. And they said, would you do more? And my wife said to me, go ahead and do more, and, and don't give the money to charity. <laughs> this is the charity. Uh, and it's something that, is it something that was in my bucket list of things I wanted to do as an actor? No. But at the same time, it meets full on the criteria of what I need is that it's in New York. I don't have to travel. I can stay home with my family. And that's the tough, tough part in this career is because I have young kids. Is that I, don't, I, I just, I don't want to travel anymore. I just don't. And what does your charity focus on? The arts, mostly. I mean, when we, we did Capital One, we made big gifts, you know, million-dollar gifts to NYU, my alma mater, to Roundabout Theater, to also uh, the New York Philharmonic. I think you're a big uh, uh, supporter. Guildhall. And, Guildhall. Uh, Guildhall. Right, well, Guildhall. You very graciously came into the show with us. Uh, Guildhall in East Hampton, uh, Hamptons Film Festival. A lot of smaller 25, 50 you know, people for the American Way, PETA, some political things, but mostly the arts. Mostly the arts. But I bet people were equally skeptical about <clears throat> Alec Baldwin playing this character on 30 Rock. I mean, I, when I first saw that show, I didn't know that you could be funny like that. I'm so amazed you say that. No, no, I mean, truly, it was like... A, a revelation, and you were, for that whole period, I mean, in my mind at least, by far the funniest person on television. And I still quote— The writing was funny. Well, no, because most people couldn't execute it the way you did. I mean, I think I think that role was really all about how you played the part and how deadpan you were. And I mean, I still think about every time I put on a tuxedo, which is yeah, not very it's often— it's after six. It's after six. What am I, a farmer? Damn, I wish this event were tonight. It's not tonight? When is it? February. Why are you wearing a tux? It's after six. What am I, a farmer? <laughs> you know, that's turned into a very popular GIF. Is that how the kids say it, GIF or GIF? GIF. I, I think it's either way. Is it GIF or is it GIF? It can be GIF. GIF to me was peanut butter. Peanut butter. I, know, I, I don't know. know. In fact, we have a question for, for you, Alec, from one of our listeners in Phoenix, Arizona. Are we on live about now? Jack. Hold no, on, let's no, listen. no, no. These are pre-recorded questions. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Hi, my question for Alec Baldwin is, his character that he played on 30 Rock, Jack Donaghy, does he have a favorite memorable line that sticks out to him? Thank you. Bye. Um, well, you mentioned that after six, and one of my farmer, that was one of them. Uh, when, the, when Carrie Fisher was on, the late Carrie Fisher, who we loved, came on, and I was thanking her. She was a veteran writer there in the comedy constellation. And when she left my office, I turned to Tina and I said, don't ever introduce me to a woman that age again. <laughs> don't ever ask me to talk to a woman that age again. That was a good one. Um, <laughs> That's, that hurts. Uh, uh, <laughs> but you're laughing. Uh, my, I was, uh, Tina's, uh, uh, there was this wonderful actor who played Tina's agent, who was like this preternatural man-child. He was like a little boy in a suit. And I said to him, I said, you and I know a few things about women, don't we? Uh, John, or whatever his name was. He goes, I've seen a few bras. But I think my all-time, um, I mean, I guess uh, the two scenes that stand out for me most was when they came to me. This is emblematic of that show. They came to me and said, you're going to play, we're going to do the Patty Duke thing, and you're going to act opposite yourself, and you're going to play a gay Mexican soap opera star. And I said to them, I go, come on. <laughs> I mean, come on, you guys, come on. And they said, no, 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 you're going to play the Generalissimo and be the gay Mexican soap opera star. And we did it. I shot against myself. And in the end, I look at the guy, I go, I look at the, gen the general and I go, you really are super gay. And the general goes, okay, so? 
And I just love that moment. <laughs> he goes, he's like fluffing his mustache. He goes, okay, so? And uh, I love when we did Hannah Releasimo. That was like just so absurd. And I guess the end, when we had to finish the show, and I had this long, weird monologue to tell Tina that I loved her. And uh, the, the, the speech that I say, lemon, there is a word which comes from the old German. And I go into this long, uh, uh, which comes from the German, lube, which means to be pleased, which is from the, lube, from the verb luber, which means to be pleasing. And I go into this rambling <laughs> nonsense thing. And before I even finish, Tina goes, I love you too, Jack. And when we shot that scene at the end, it just was like a knife in me. I couldn't believe, because it was like the best. And even though I whined and complained when I was there about certain things, it was the best job I'll ever have. It was were, the best. Were you sorry? I mean, why did it have to end? Well, I think Tina very, you know, Tina's smart. And she's smart in all ways, not just in writing jokes. Tina was the, you know, the principal producer of the show. And she knew that she wanted to go out before we had gotten down. There was no juice on the rind anymore. Yeah, she didn't want to jump the shark. And she had two kids. She had two kids. And she wanted to, I think, she, I think that to, to write and produce and star in that show, I mean, I always say the same thing, which is not at all uh, uh, a critique at all, but I knew we were going to go off the air when Tina came into rehearsal one morning and laid down on the couch, which she'd never done in the six years prior. And the second season was a short order, was 13 episodes. And we came into the seventh season, the final 13 episodes, and Tina came in one day, and she just lay on the couch and kind of like moaned softly. She was so tired. And I looked at some people, I was like, this is over. We're done. So what's on your, uh, what is a part of your current poo-poo platter of professional responsibilities right now? Well, I like to uh, use the phrase tapas myself more, <laughs> Katie, if you don't mind. I, I just mean, like poo-poo to poo-poo platter poo-poo seems platter. like a very Upper East Side thing you'd say, very kind of dated. <laughs> upper East Side of Kauai. Yeah, the Upper yeah. East Side of uh, uh, Palau. Okay, what's your... <laughs> uh, Manila. Um, the, uh, um, well, I'm going to go do uh, Emilio Estevez's new movie called The Public, and uh, that's a name I haven't heard for a long time. I love Emilio. He's a great, you know, very serious filmmaker. He did this wonderful film with his father called The Way, in which uh, Martin Sheen crosses the the, the great uh, hike in uh, Spain. And um, uh, Emilio did a movie about the staff of the Cincinnati Public Library takes over the library. And I play the hostage negotiator, which tries to talk him out of it because they're threatening all these budget cuts and they want to broom out all the homeless people and they want to, you know, kind of fluff up the library, all the rich trustees. And um, uh, I love Emilio. He's just such a sweet guy and so into it. Because when you make a movie, you want to be with somebody who's clear. He's very clear. So I have that. My book is coming out. I've got to do a lot of press for that. Um, was writing a book fun for you? Was it? No, it was torture. Was it? Was it? Torture. Well, I mean, I don't need to tell you. I mean, you've done a lot of writing. It's like what you put in and what you don't put in and what you leave out. Because I'm you thinking about emphasize. writing a memoir, too. Oh, you should. People would go crazy. You I don't owe know. It. You know, just because uh, of all these life experiences I have had, whether it's, you know, my husband dying of cancer or these really interesting experiences I've had working at different networks. Um, you, you, I'm, I'm going to say something that's going to sound funny, but and, and some of it may, might be funny, but it's like there's people who just owe the public a memoir. Uh, I'm not one of those people. I don't think I owe the public a memoir, but you are certainly one of the people who owe the public a memoir because people love you so much. I kind of get that. I mean, I kind of get how much people love you. I'm kidding. 
but people love you, like, boundlessly. And you should come. I can't believe you haven't written a Gosh, book. we have to invite Alec back to do no, the podcast. I feel so, so good about Katie. myself I mean, we gotta, all It's hard to crack all right, the code so about Tell me about Mission Impossible. Well, we're going to go off and do the movie, and uh, uh, it's always the way it is with those guys where, with some slight exceptions, it's like Tom flies around the world and saves the world and jumps out of this and jumps off of this. And then I'm in an office. Uh, I go to a set in London. They shoot in London, the sets, the stages. And I'm on a set with Tom, and I'm like, I thought I told you to stop doing that thing. I don't want you doing that, jumping off that thing again. Tom goes and jumps off another thing and blows up another thing. And I'm said, what's wrong with you that you don't remember our last conversation? Where I told you, don't do that again. You know, like whatever the thing is, I'm uh, the head of the CIA, and I work with him now. And What was appealing about doing this movie for you? You know, I've made so many movies, and I haven't made a lot of movies like that in a while. I spent a lot of time doing 30 Rock. I would be in indie land doing movies where budgets are tight. And tough compromises, I mean, really painful compromises are made in order to try to make the film. And, uh, uh, you know, I went and did It's Complicated with Meryl, which was, you know, they spent a lot of money on that movie. It was Nancy Myers who gets a lot of dough to make her films, and it's very comfortable but I haven't made, I hadn't made a lot of those. And when you're on the set, it's just remarkable. Like what money, and they want it on screen. They're all very responsible people. And there's no one who was more of a thrill to work with than Tom. Really? Oh, he's just unbelievable. He's unbelievable. He is unbelievable. He just is like, let's, the days he wasn't shooting, he was on the set. Because he's a producer, he'd come up to me and say, yes, yeah. Or, and he'd even t- t- give me an idea. He'd say to me, what do you think about this? He's like a machine. You know, I said to him, I go, what do you do? to unwind when this is over. I said, where do you go? Like, what's your guilty pleasure? What's the thing you do in between? He said, what's my guilty pleasure? Because when we're done, he said, I find another script and I start all over again. He said, I just love to shoot. I love to shoot. And I thought, if I was you, I'd love to shoot too. Because it's a pretty good life he has, you know? And uh, he's just, he's, I'm dying to go over there and do that with him again. I just don't know what I'm doing yet. Did you like working with uh, Scorsese in The Departed? Because I thought that was one of your best roles. Those kinds of films, I mean, you were a guest, really. You're not playing a big part. So it's what you get to watch. I mean, you do your scenes. When I did The Aviator, it was really a thrill to watch Leo, who I have this uh, bottomless admiration for. And then to do The Departed with that crowd. And, you know, Marty is obviously... Uh, one of the top examples of people who, they see the movie, they know what they want, what they don't want. You know, one of the first films I ever made was Working Girl with Mike Nichols. And he was just a dream in that sense, which was, you know, he'd say, what do you think of this? And you'd have an idea in the rehearsal. And he'd say, no, I don't think it's that. And he'd like, right away, it was it was like, he knew, rather than us kind of masturbating for day after day of like trying to figure out what the movie is, he knew what the movie was. And he knew what he wanted you to do, which is a great uh, uh, pleasure. You, you've worked with so many extraordinary people. Is there someone you admire the most? I wouldn't say the most, but the person that comes to mind most is Tony Hopkins. When I went to go do The Edge with Tony, and he had just come from doing Nixon before that. And I wrote this in the book. I tell this story. Like when we were in the Canadian Rockies, which was the most beautiful place I've ever been, uh, my sister Beth came to see me, and she comes into the woods uh, to see me and greet me and it's the end of the day and Tony was lying on the ground on an air mattress they made like a little bed for him because he'd hurt his back and he's reading the newspaper and I said Tony I'm sorry to interrupt you but I'd like to introduce you to my sister my sister Beth 
And Tony puts down the newspaper and he gathers himself up and he stands up very slowly and he raises himself up and he takes my sister's hand and he says, Elizabeth, what a great pleasure to meet you. And kisses her hand. And my sister, who was married, had six children. I literally saw her like kind of like swoon. She'd have left it all behind right Elizabeth, then and there. My great pleasure <laughs> to meet you. You are such a good mimic. And you it was, like, killed incredible. me. And my sister was like, oh my God. And she was like completely gonna wet her pants because Tony Hopkins kissed her hand. And you admire him so much because he's so elegant, talented, oh, gracious. He's so, talented. he's so varied. Can you do he's a Katie so, impression? Much more importantly, can you do a Katie impression? No, no, no but but he does a mean. He does a mean Tony Bennett. Do me a quick Tony Bennett thing. Come on. When we did the show, we had begged Danny Bennett to have Tony come on, and he finally did come on. And uh, and he played. Uh, I played Tony. <laughs> it's so funny to say this to me. I played Tony Bennett. And he played uh, uh, Anthony De Benedetto, who was a Tony Bennett impersonator, <laughs> who I sued. I read, I sued the bejesus out of him. <laughs> and, and I said, tell him the name you use in your act now. He says, I go by the name Phony Bennett. So we said to Danny, would he come on with us? And Danny said, yeah, but my dad really doesn't quite get it. Like, what are you guys up to? Like, he just wants you to say to me, what is it you guys are doing? And I said, well, we obviously make it silly and stupid, and there's a lot of stupid thing about him, you know, have, having, having had his life as a womanizer, you know. I met a gal once that had toenails that were like a stack of barbecued Fritos, he said. Lamisil antifungal cream for nails was the commercial. And, uh, um, and, and uh, Danny said, what is the thing? And I go, well, underneath it all, there has to be something joyful and positive. <laughs> I said, and the positive is that Tony reminds us that the business is supposed to be fun. We're supposed to be having fun and not complaining and, 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 and stressing out all the time. We do the show. The show's over. It's 1 o'clock. He packs up his bags. He's heading to the elevator. Now it's probably closer to 1.30 in the morning. Back then, he was like 80 years old. And, uh, uh, he, and the cast came out, some of them, to have their picture taken with him on their phones. And Tony turns to them and says, you kids are terrific. This has been a million-dollar night. And he said the phrase, this has been a million-dollar night. And we always were like, oh, my God. He's such a I, – I, I love him. And I love Danny. I mean, the two of them together. Did you see Zen of Bennett? Yes. Oh, my. People who are listening to this, get that documentary, Zen of Bennett. It's such a great movie. And, and you had a big role in his recent 90th birthday at uh, Radio City, right, Alan? I played Tony Bennett, and we brought on Phony Bennett again. So, so funny. Before we leave this podcast, yeah. we just got to ask about your podcast, which is a huge hit. So we're trying to learn from you. How long have you been doing it? How long do you want to keep doing it? And what do you think makes it so special? Well, in the way that we talked about work that I did that was dictated by my life and my kids and so forth, I came up with the idea of doing a radio show. Lisa Bernbach was going to be my co-host, who's very witty and funny, great writer, Lisa Bernbach. And we were going to have handbook. Preppy Handbook. And we were going to have like a news person and a culture person. That idea, which is a lot of work and a lot of writing and a lot of producing and staffing, these people came to me from WNYC and said, don't do that. Do this. You and a mic and you interview people and do a podcast. And you try to access people you know in the business who you might have some contacts with that are famous or successful or what have you or admired. And the only thing that I do in my show that is a, is, is a, is a, you know, is a, is a decision, I don't want to say technique, but is to have a longer format like this where people can 
relax. Uh, Rob uh, Mills, who's the head of ABC, who was the guy that's my executive at ABC for the match game work that we do. I love him. And he's one of the biggest reasons that I do match game because I love Rob so much. I'm, when I go do match game, we do have fun. It's, it's silly and dopey, I know. And I'm sorry I've disappointed you in doing that. I, I, I understand. <laughs> I'm going to go home right away. I'm going to start looking up the things you've done that you've disappointed me, and I'm going to email you. Let's see, I mean, by the way, I came across this. What was that about, Katie? Hello? You know, we've all disappointed <clears throat> her at various moments in our lives. It's okay. It's a sort of growing up I feel experience. Like I'm, I feel like I'm her brother. And she's like, you, that's what you're wearing for Halloween? And that's the lamest costume I've ever seen in my life. What, what are you, Zorro? What is that? Like the little weird mask on? But um, the um, uh, the the podcast, uh, the thing is that uh, Rob said, he said, what I love about your technique is he says, I call it the warm bath interview technique. He said, you just get your your subjects to come into that warm bath with you and they relax. And eventually 20 minutes go by and they start telling you who they really are. It's and true. And I love that. But don't you think it's true that there's something more intimate about this? There's something more. more relaxed and revealing as a result. But I think, listen, you've interviewed infinitely, I mean, to the nth degree more people than I have as a result of all of these different things you've done, whether it was with NBC and beyond. And you've interviewed countless more people than I have, mostly in those tighter TV segments of six or seven minutes or so. And what I find is that when you interview people is that the length of the podcast and the length of time we have, which of course we cut down, provides us with a chance to let them give it to us. We don't have to try to take it. True. If they feel you're not predatory, if they feel you're not trying to, to facilitate something with them and you let them make, you let it be their decision, they will very often tell you things that they might not have otherwise. Before we go, I have to ask you two quick family questions. One from your Early childhood, you know, you're one of six. It's you obviously have a close relationship with Beth, who came to visit you on that set. But your brothers, you know, particularly Stephen, your politics could not be more different than his. It must be a strange dynamic in a family with more than one person in showbiz, as they say. How has that affected your relationship with your siblings, Alec? I always wondered that about you. Well, I think that, that by and large, over time, these spasms that happen where people act out a certain way that one side isn't approving of, they have, like any family, we're no different than anybody else. There's some ramification. There's some period uh, where we're seeking some detente there, you know. With my brother Stephen, he is, uh, and we've had this conversation, and I'm not saying this to be, you know, mean-spirited or whatever, he falls right into that uh, Trump dynamic of a percentage of Trump's supporters, not all of them, certainly, which is uneducated. My brother didn't go to college. He went right into the business. Uh, uh, he's uh, got a lot of anti-government sentiments. You know, he doesn't like paying his taxes. I mean, it was in the paper that he almost got arrested for not paying his state income taxes and so forth. And um, uh, there's a, you know, there's a Fox News component to this, a DNA to this about people who need their politics pre-digested for them. You know, like most people I know, I don't need people to give me, I, I want to read things and get information from the New York Review of Books and the New Yorker and the New York Times, but other sources as well. Um, and uh, I don't need that stuff uh, 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 pre-chewed for me. And the other side seems to need a lot of that. These people need people to articulate their opinions and tell them and, and kind of shape what they're thinking. Hannity's telling you, well, well, what you really mean is this. 
And what you really need is this. And my brother has kind of fallen victim to that, I think. Has that created some tension between you? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, I decided he would email me and say, you're going to do that Trump thing, he said. I said, yeah. He goes, Pfft. he said, you're just playing right into Donald's hands, he said. Now, when Trump won, there was a kind of a stinging effect that had to me, which was, I mean, you know, I don't believe that Trump won as a result of, you know, five or six critical things. And some of it was, you know, we didn't get the best Hillary on the campaign trail either, by the way. But um, the, um, and I, I'm a great admirer of hers, but I just thought that could have gone better. But yeah, there's been some tensions about it because I, I, I don't think he understands what he's doing, you know. When I listen to Trump today in the car on the way here, and again, I don't say this with any malice. I don't enjoy saying this. I think that he has some kind of neurological disorder. I think he has something wrong with him physically because he just is stuck in this kind of uh, flailing, rhetorically flailing. He's like a guy who's drowning in, in lifeguard school. They tell you you've got to slap the guy across the face who's drowning, or else they'll drown you too. B- Trump is borderline hysterical sometimes. And that's not going to work for us, for someone to be in that in that job. I love that Alec uses words like peripatetic and metronomically. He has an amazing vocabulary. You do. It's awesome. And it's such a it's such a pleasure to listen to someone who is so facile with the English language. I just wanted to say that as a I quick aside. I try very hard to craft the words I say in such a way that they sound just so fantastic to the American people. I try so hard. I really do. You cut that schmaltz with a big orange knife right there. Yeah. All right, we've got to go. But yeah. before we do, I just have to ask you one final question. Not to sound like cheesy, but I'm so happy that you're in such a great place. I feel like professionally, things are going so well for you, with the exception of the match game, um, that you're doing so many great <laughs> things. a highly rated program, by the way. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. You just... I feel like you're just in a in a great place, but also in terms of your personal life. And, you know, it's so nice to see you have this really second chapter with Hilaria. And I'm curious, what is it about your relationship with Hilaria, about your children, about where you are in life personally, that that's working so well for you? Well, before I answer that, let me say that I have uncovered the match game analogy for your career. <laughs> And then as, as a devoted uh, Today Show watcher and a worshiper of you personally, uh, when you came down a staircase, I think it was a Halloween show, and you were dressed as Marilyn Monroe, and you did diamonds or a girl's best friend. Was that a low point? And you were busting out of some, like, lame costume or some chiffon costume. I said, my God, where has my Katie gone? What happened to her? She's gone. All right, that's so let's my just match say, game that's moment. Your match game. Thank that, you. That's your match game. Thank you for reminding yeah, me of that. Yeah, diamonds are a girl's, but you can Google that, by the way. Try to, you can YouTube oh, I watched, that. I watched I, it a lot, it, believe me. Oh, it's, 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 it was amazing. And so having said that, um, the answer to your question is, you know, my wife is a very self-actualized person. She knows who she is and where she is and what she wants. And there's not a lot of uh, uh, self-sabotage there. There's not a lot of uh, unnecessary, uh, you know, psychological uh, detritus around with her. She's a very, very, very smart and wise young woman. So I'm lucky. And my kids are very lucky. She's a great mom. You know, we're on this journey together and I'm just really lucky. I'm so lucky to have met her. She's such a, she's such a, uh, a decent, and uh, she does not complicate things unnecessarily. No drama. She's not. Yeah, she's like. Yeah, she just without even commenting on it. She just as a, her nature is to sidestep the drama very effectively. You know. 
And she's a changed kiss her life on too. The hand can be <laughs> quite so continental, <laughs> but diamonds are a girl's best friend. <laughs> on that, on those notes, <laughs> on those many notes. Alec, uh, it's so fun having you. Thank you really so much for coming by. Um, really, wow. ha- really happy <clears throat> for everything. Catherine? Catherine Ann. Catherine. Such a pleasure to And let the record reflect, he is kissing her hand. It's as a pleasure to meet you, Catherine. As Tony Hopkins. Yes. Yes. Close friends call him Tony. Tony. I call him Tone. You know, if you're you really close to him, you call him Tone. Yeah. <laughs> you hurt me. You cut me to the quick. As only a Stanford Law grad could. It's nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you, too. Thank what a you pleasure. For doing this. Yeah, what a pleasure. Thank you, Alec. As always, we want to thank... Gianna Palmer for producing the show and Jared O'Connell for engineering and mixing it. Thanks as well to Mark Phillips for our theme music. Which I've been listening to in the shower. (laughs) Not really. Also, remember you can email us at comments at currickpodcast.com. You can find me on social media. I'm Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and katie.couric on Snapchat. I religiously follow Brian Goldsmith. So Brian, tell us your handle so everyone else can too. At GoldsmithB on Twitter. Best of all, you can rate and review us on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe as well. Thanks so much for listening. We've had fun talking. We hope you've had fun listening to us. And asking great questions. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.